Well, I've, uh, I've had the privilege of doing a reasonable amount of flying, and I always travel economy. Maybe one day that will change, but I always travel economy, paddle class, when I fly. But you know what I reckon the worst bit of an aeroplane trip is? It's when you're getting on the plane and you walk past first class. You know where you're headed, you know how much legroom you are, you're going to have. And there they are, they're already seated, they're getting a glass of champagne, they're just stretching out. And I reckon that there's, there's only one thing worse than that, and that's seeing a child in first class. Uh, and it's not just because they don't even need the legroom, it'll all be wasted. Um, I, I reckon uh, that that gets to me because uh, as a culture, we hate seeing someone uh, getting something when they haven't earned it. Uh, you know, when it's, a, when it's an adult and they're in first class, they think, okay, well, you know, they've, they've probably worked pretty hard, they've paid their way. Well, this kid, all they did was get born in that family. They're, they're only there because of their, who their mum and dad is. Only there because of how much money their mum and dad is. They, 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 if they've not earned it at all. And that sort of gets on your goat. As a, as a culture, we have a bit of a problem. If we see someone getting someone something they haven't earned, uh, we, we have an issue if we see someone who hasn't earned their place. You go, yeah, well, uh, he's only there because of his dad's money. Or she's only there because her mum's the principal or whatever it might be. Uh, and, and we don't like it. Uh, but I want to ask this, this afternoon, uh, how do you respond when you feel you don't deserve your place? I don't know if you've uh, been in that situation where, you, where you've, you've realised... I don't deserve to be here. I haven't earned my place. Uh, it, it happened to me about seven years ago when I planted this church. Uh, and as, a, as I was the lead pastor, made sure it was lead pastor, not senior pastor, because I was 25. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, I qualified to be on the, the, the board of lead pastors in our, in our network, in our denomination. And I had a vote, and I was sitting there with all these uh, mostly, oh, well, I thought they were old, you know, they're in their 30s and 40s. No, they were even, even older than that some. Um, and and, and I, I was acutely aware that I didn't deserve to be here. I hadn't earned my seat at this table. Now, now what, what, what do we do? What can we, what can we do when we feel like that? Uh, well, often uh, we'll end up being a bit insecure. Often we'll end up being a de- bit defensive. Uh, often we'll, we'll set out to try and prove that we deserve our place there. We'll say to ourselves, well, I'm going to work twice as hard as anyone else. I'm going to show that I have earned my place here, that I deserve to be in this circle. Now, I want to ask, what, what do you do when you realise that this is a case as a Christian? What do you do when you realise that that exact scenario is the case for you If you follow Jesus as a Christian, when you realise that you do not deserve your place as one of God's children, when you realise that you haven't earned it, you're like that little kid in first class who has done nothing to deserve to be there. Now, most of us know the feeling. Most of us are familiar with the feeling uh, of realising, I don't deserve what God's given me. I don't deserve to be his child I don't deserve to be here. I haven't earned it. And if you're not familiar with that feeling, in fact, if, if you haven't experienced that, that feeling, that sensation of, of complete 
undeservedness of what God has done for you and the place you have with him. If you haven't experienced that, I want to flag that that's a, that's a, that's a red flashing warning light. Uh, we're going to come back to that in a little while because that feeling, uh, that emotion, that recognition is actually one of the crucial uh, signs of salvation. Uh, maybe, maybe you're feeling insecure. Maybe you realise, you, 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 oh, you don't need me to tell you how sinful you are. You're thinking, Liam, I don't need you to tell me that I don't deserve my place in Jesus' family. I'm aware of it every second of every day. Maybe you're aware that you don't deserve your place, but you're hopeful that as time goes on, as you mature as a Christian and you get better, that that feeling will dissipate. Well, having talked to mature Christians, I'm sad to inform you that that you're wrong, that gets worse. That as you mature as a Christian, you actually realise that you're way worse than you ever thought you were. And God is so much more generous than uh, you ever realised. So that, that feeling doesn't get less, it gets more. And more and more you realise you don't deserve. Uh, and see, there's, there's other things that can intensify that feeling too. Uh, things that maybe aren't so good. Often it happens when we look at others. When we see their roles, their titles, when we see their service, when we see how impressive they are as Christians. Uh, sometimes we can feel a bit insecure. We can look at them and think, how could I be like them? If, if I was like, how could I be like that person? That lady, that man, how can I be like them? If I was like them, I would feel secure. And, and the real danger is that we can conclude that to become secure as Christians, we can conclude that to become secure as Christians is to do what they do, is to, to imitate those, to do the actions of those we look at that we think, yeah, they're, they're a good Christian. They're, they're the sort of Christian I want to be like. They look secure and imitate them. To think that that will cement me in as, you know, a, a tier one premium Christian. You know, be at church more, give more money, serve more, get recognised, get baptised, get approved. But to conclude that would be a deadly mistake. What we look to for security as Christians uh, is a heaven and hell issue. What we depend on for our identity and security is a heaven and hell issue. And that was the Galatian situation. See, they, like all Christians, they've been feeling that they didn't deserve their place at the table. But worse, they had people piling on the guilt and giving them precisely the wrong solution. You might remember... Oh, hang on a minute. I pressed the wrong button. You might remember where the uh, Galatians are on the map there. Uh, Galatia is modern-day Turkey, north of Israel, predominantly Gentile, that is, non-Jewish region that Paul had gone as a missionary to and planted a series of churches. He planted the churches. It seems that he'd, he'd actually converted a bunch of people. He'd been with them in their conversion. He'd taught them. He'd established them. And then he'd gone off to do other work. Uh, uh, and and they, are, they are quite quite vulnerable as a group of churches. I think we forget this often. They didn't have the New Testament to go to. They, they were vulnerable uh, to, to wrong doctrine, to wrong, wrong teaching coming in. They were probably feeling a bit insecure uh, that they had come into God's family late. You know, they weren't Jews after all. They're probably, probably a bit insecure. Oh, we're just Gentiles. Oh, Jesus forgave us, but, you know, I wish I, wish I had a bit of Abraham's blood in me. They were, they're probably a bit insecure. And then, on top of all that, the Judaizers come in. Uh, they're called the, the circumcision group. Uh, Rob likes to say, great name for a band. 
Uh, they, they, these Jew, Jews who claim to be Christians, but they're very Jewish uh, Christians, they come in from Jerusalem. Uh, they're, they're, they're God's proper people. Uh, and they came in saying uh, that, that they, had their, they had their authority, they had their confidence, they had their Old Testament scrolls and their heritage. And they came into these Galatian churches saying, be like us. If you want to be a tier one Christian, if you want to properly be one of God's people, you need to be like us. You need to obey these laws. You need to follow these rules. That's how you become secure. Oh, I know you're a little bit insecure, Galatians. We'll show you how to become secure. You've got to start living like a Jew. Uh, That's how you really qualify as one of God's people. And the Galatians fell for it. The Galatians fell for it. Hook, line and sinker. And this is actually the core of their issue. They're confused about the place of the law. They're confused about the place of obedience within the plan of salvation. They're hoping to become God's people. They want to be God's people desperately. They're trying to join the true family of God. They don't think they're in yet. But they're trying to join through the wrong means. And Paul in this letter, uh, to address their mistake and their insecurities, he he writes in this letter, and and as he does, it is critically important for us that we sort this out too. Uh, Today from chapter 3, we're going to see how you start and finish the race, that the Christian life uh, is often described as a race. Uh, We're going to see that it was always by faith. We're going to see uh, that we can't afford to pay what we owe. And at each point, we're going to just pause at the end, little take-home application. Often we say, well, here's the application at the end. We're going to have that sprinkled through today. Uh, but, but first of all, Paul, Paul kicks us off by showing us how, how we start and finish the race. Verse 1 of chapter 3. And he starts with a bang. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by your believing what you heard? Now there's a lot of assumed knowledge here and we need to recognise that. Uh, Paul's uh, asking a lot of rhetorical questions with very implied answers. You can, you can hear his tone uh, as he's speaking. So you see, Paul had taught them all the assumed knowledge. He established the church. He converted these people. He taught them. And, and he taught them how salvation happens, how you enter God's family, how you get right with God. Uh, and salvation, becoming part of God's family, becoming right with God, it is are inextricably linked with the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit is, is God's Spirit. We see him pop up all the way through the Bible. Uh, he, he, he is God. But, but in the Old Testament, uh, we see that the Holy Spirit didn't come to all of God's people in the way it does in the New Testament. He only came to certain individuals like Moses. Uh, Moses is probably one of the ones we, we see most clearly that he had this amazing relationship with God. And we're told he has God's spirit. Uh, And Moses has uh, a bit of a fanboy, Joshua. There's a book about him as well. 
and, and Moses, the job's getting a bit big for him. A couple of million people. Uh, he's adjudicating a lot of uh, rules and issues. Uh, and God says, I'm actually going to send my spirit to more, to actually 70 of the elders. I'm going I'm to give my spirit uh, to, to help you with this load. Uh, and what had happened was they, they, they received the spirit and they started prophesying. They started speaking God's words out of the camp. And young Joshua, because he was such a fanboy of Moses, he got a bit jealous for Moses' sake. Uh, and he, he came running to Moses. He said, this is terrible. There's someone usurping your leadership. Oh, they're out there prophesying. That's your job, Moses. And Moses replies like this, Numbers 11. Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. See, right from the start of the Bible, we have this, this longing, this hint that there's going to come a day when God's spirit will be democratised, will go to all of his people. It becomes explicit in Joel towards the end of the Old Testament, one of the prophets who God speaks through. And he talks about when he will come and bring salvation to his people. And, and this is one of the promises and afterward. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, that's not saying that only the old men will dream dreams and only the young. It's saying that this is going to go for everyone. What was for a select few of God's people will now be for all of God's people. Everyone will get God's spirit when they come to faith in him. And we see that in, in Acts, when, uh, when Peter's preaching, when the Holy Spirit comes, uh, and he quotes this passage. And he says, this is the day, it's happened. It's happened. We are in the era, this, this longed-for era, when God's Spirit will come to all. And it's, it's attached intricately to conversion. Uh, we see it consistently through the New Testament. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes this, uh, and you also, so he's talking to Christian, you also, were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Not after you were believed, not at some distant time in the future. When you believed, you were marked with the Holy Spirit who's a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Uh, the receiving of the Spirit is connected to salvation. It's connected to that time where we get right with God. Uh, in this passage, we've got a couple of big words. Uh, one of them is, is justification or being justified. Uh, it's a legal term that was used in the courts of the day. So it's a common term uh, in, in, in Paul's day. Uh, and when a, when a judge uh, came to, to a case uh, and he looked at all the evidence, he heard the witnesses, uh, he either uh, declared guilty uh, the, the person who'd been brought forward or he justified the person who'd been brought forward. And he said, no, no, you're, you're not Guilty. It's a, it's a declaration that you are innocent. I, I, I deem this not to be an accurate charge, case. You're, you're, you're not guilty. Uh, it, it's about being declared righteous. Uh, in the context of the Bible, the way justification and righteous means, it, it's about having a right relationship with God. A couple of good little memory hooks that I use here. Justified. Uh, think just as if I'd never sinned. So if I'm justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. I'm declared righteous. And righteous is just being right with God. I'm now in a right relationship with God. If you're guilty before the court, you have an, you have an issue with the court, with the magistrate, with the law. 
If you're declared righteous, you, you don't have an issue with the court. And that's the way it works with us and God. Now, now Paul makes it very clear uh, in those first few verses. He, he makes it very clear that the, the, the basis for being justified, the basis for receiving the Spirit, is not the works of the law. Uh, and that's what he, he's got this uh, rhetorical question. Who has bewitched you? Uh, verse 2. I'd like to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or by believing what you've heard. He could have said, did you become a Christian? Did you receive salvation? Were you justified by the works of the law or by believing what you've heard? And, and for him, the answer is obvious. We see it all through his writings. Of course it wasn't by the works of the law. That's the whole point of Christianity. You can't do it. You can't tidy yourself up. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good to earn your way into God's family. That's why he said, you know this, Galatians. That's why he calls them foolish. You know this. I taught you this. I baptised you into this. You received the Spirit. You became a Christian. You were justified, not by works of the law, not by obeying rules, but by believing the promises of God, particularly the promises around Christ crucified. That's what he says. Christ is portrayed as crucified. The, The cross is where we see uh, forgiveness come from. The, the Jesus' crucifixion, when he died, uh, he took our sin. That is what atones. That's what takes our sin. That's what provides forgiveness. And Paul says, you know this. It's, it's, it's hanging before your eyes. You know this. That's how you join God's family. Not by what you did or what you can do, but by what Jesus has freely given. Now, I mentioned earlier that if you've if you've never felt that you don't deserve to be in God's family, or in the positive, if you do feel that you deserve to be in God's family, that in some way you've earned it or are worthy or you're a valuable contributor, if you feel that you pull your weight with God, you go, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but I pull my weight. If you feel that, you should have warning bells going on. Because it is possible, Paul says, it's possible to, to, to think you're right with God and actually realise it's in vain, actually realise that, that you, you haven't trusted Jesus for salvation. You haven't depended on him for forgiveness. Instead, you've said you depend on him, but, but inside you're going, I've done pretty well. Thank you very much. I'm going to depend on myself. So if you're thinking that you stay in or you stay a Christian, that you secure your place, you finish your journey in life, Uh, with God um, because of what you do, then there is a real possibility that you've missed out on life with God. By definition, if you are trusting yourself, what you do, your goodness, your works, you are not trusting Jesus. There's a real possibility you've not trusted Jesus. Warning bells should be going off. Uh, and, And so our first little point of application is to first see our helplessness. Look at Look it in the face. It's not, it's, it's not nice uh, to realise you're helpless. Uh, the band of Brent Chocolate's favourites play, plays on that, don't they, in the, their ads? What, when do you bring favourites? What to bring when you're told not to bring a thing? They play on this sense that, oh, well, I can't turn up empty-handed. And we all feel it, don't we? Oh, I've got to bring something. And we can do that with the gospel. We can do that with God. And we can tell ourselves, well, I've brought something. I'm, I'm de- depending on this Little box of favourites, effectively. And that's not how it works. So see your helplessness. 
Trust Jesus. That's what he says. Christ before you is portrayed as crucified. Look at the cross at the atonement. Trust Jesus. Uh, and don't think that you can finish by works. That's, that's, a, that's a lifelong risk. You might start in the right way, but you might think, oh, well, now I'm in. You know, I'd better start paying my way. Better start making sure I, you know, I'm worth my keep. And we can slip into thinking that we might finish our race by works. That's point one. Uh, that we start and finish the race by faith. And by faith, that's, that's the, the, just another word for trust. Uh, in this passage, it's used interchangeably uh, with by believing what God said. That's, that's, that's faith. And Paul's next point is that uh, not only uh, do we start and finish the race by faith, but uh, it always was by faith. That's the way God has always worked. Uh, and he calls his first witness in against these Judaizers who are pointing uh, back to the Old Testament law. Uh, the Crocodile Dundee movies, absolute classics. You remember that one? That's not a knife. This is a knife. That's what Paul does here. So these Judaizers, they've been walking around with their scrolls of the Old Testament, thinking they were the big guns in Galatia, saying, ah, let me take you back to the law. And Paul says, ah, you want to go back to the law? I'll take you back before the law. Let's go back to Abraham. So also, he says, Abraham, first witness, believed God, had faith, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand stand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, so that those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Uh, now, this, this is Abraham, if you're not familiar with who Abraham was. He's the, the father of the Jewish nation. Uh, he was just an ordinary guy hanging out in a land called Ur with his family, and God chose him. And he spoke to him and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And the Jews were descended from, from him. Uh, and that, 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 that's Abraham. Now, a couple of things to, to notice in this passage. Uh, first, I want us to notice that that Paul said Abraham believed God, not believed in God. Very easy little uh, word for us to insert in there, accidentally. Uh, believing God and believing in God, completely different things. You can believe in God, you can believe there is a God. And that is very different to believing God. Believing God is, is, is when God says something, you say that, that is true and that is right and I will trust that. And I'll act on that. It's saying, I believe what you say. It's faith. It's trust. It's not just believing that he's there. Uh, The other thing to notice here is that many Christians misassume that this this faith of Abraham was actually an act. Uh, I found this even automatically as I was reading this. I thought, oh, where did I see Abraham's faith? I said, oh, well, I saw it when he left Ur. And, and followed God. We saw it when uh, he went up the mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac, which he didn't. God stopped him, but he, he, he did all these acts. But then I had to pull myself up and say, that's not what this says, is it? It doesn't say, for Abraham obeyed God and it was credited as righteousness, does it? What's it say? He believed him. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was Abraham. It was not Abraham's acts of faith that we might assume that we're credited. See, see, faith isn't doing stuff for God. 
It's believing him. We've got to tell this to ourselves again and again and again because we'll slip back into it. Faith is not doing stuff for God. It's believing him. For Abraham, faith wasn't an act or an action. It was an attitude. It was a relationship. It was trust. Abraham believing God was, was when God said, Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. He went, I believe you. That's it. That, that, that's what it means to believe him. Now, what came after was an expression of that belief, but the act itself is not the faith. And it's the same for us. It's the same for us. But this is really tricky because when we look at others, we can't actually see their trust. You can't actually see someone else's faith. But you do see the results of it. But it's a really important distinction to draw. The results of faith or the proof of faith is a different thing to faith itself. Uh, Believe, uh, if we we believe God's family is important, we might see the fruit of that in, in someone saying, yeah, I'm committed to church. I'm committed to meeting together and loving them and serving them. If we believe that Jesus' mission is crucial, you might see the results of that belief in being a missionary or giving to missions or praying for missions. But but you see that they're two different things. If we believe that living, holy living is honouring to our great God, if we believe that doing the right thing is honouring, that will express itself in then doing the right thing, but they're different things. Uh, And it's, it's really, really hard. Faith will result in action. But we can't look at the faithful... Uh, We can't look at the faithful and see the evidence of their faith and think that we can be secure by doing the act, by doing the evidence. That that is such an easy trap. We look at someone and we think, oh, aren't they a faithful Christian? I want to be like them. I can can see all... And you think, well, how do I become a faithful Christian? And I will do their act. Now, that act is a consequence of their faith. So, So you might end up doing that, but... Don't just copy them. That's not how it works. Don't be taken in that by doing works, you can be counted counted as righteous. Faith is not doing stuff for God. It's believing him. Uh, For Abraham, it wasn't an act. It was an attitude. Don't, Don't look at the act and copy the act. That's just works. That's just religion. Believe God, love God, seek that relationship, and it will transform your life. But, but what we're seeking is faith, not the works. And, and, and what's incredible here is that if, if we are to trust God, if we are to believe him, rather than to try to earn or deserve or pay for our <coughs> salvation, then we are Abraham's children. Now, as far as I'm aware, I don't think any of you are ethnic Jews. Uh, at least not pure bloods. Um, so so this, is, this is incredible, isn't it? This promise that says, if you have faith, if you believe God, if you trust God, you are Abraham's children. You are, you are heirs to the promise we find out elsewhere. If we rely on faith, we are blessed along with Abraham. Uh, If you live by faith, if you believe God, if you trust Jesus for salvation, then the good news is you are a top-tier Christian. There is only one tier in Christians. That's that's the great news. If you have faith in Jesus, if you believe him when he says, I love you, I died to save you, trust me and I'll forgive you, 
if you take him at his word and trust him and enter that relationship, you're a top-tier Christian. You're one of Abraham's children. There's no more hoops to jump through. <coughs> There's no extra level. Now, application for us in this uh, is, is as we think about confidence. Where does our confidence for, for our relationship with God coming from? And, and I think a really helpful question here based on that passage is, what are you relying on to credit your account? What are you relying on to credit your account? So we read that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was chalked up as being righteous, as being right with God. What are you relying on for that credit? We're going to have to do some self-examination, some prayerful self-examination. Am I relying on my works? Am I relying on what I do? Am I relying on my Christian observances? Have they crept in and become something? I go, you know what? They contribute. Yeah, I know know they're not everything, but hey, they're they're good. Am I relying on them? He says, it's not because of what you do or don't do, but it's the belief in God and what he promises, what he has done. Do you trust him? Do you believe him? Or are you tempted to try and top up the account with your works? We can be confident because of what Jesus has done, not because of how good a Christian you are, which, which releases us from that, that up and down of faith that says, oh, I don't even know if I'm saved today. And the next day you go, well, definitely in because I've been such a good little Christian. Don't be confident because of the quality of your works, because of what Jesus has done for you and your trust in that. So we start and finish by faith. It always was by faith. Before the law, the founder, Abraham, it always was by faith. Third point is that we cannot afford to pay for righteousness. Verses 10 to 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law will be justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Now, I've got a little illustration here. I want you to imagine uh, that you're taking your family on a cruise. You've got young children uh, and you're taking your family on a cruise and you've got, say, a four-year-old son and he's quite adamant that he wants to pay his own way. He says, yeah, thank you very much, Mum and Dad. Uh, Love to go on a cruise. I'm going to pay for it. And you try and explain, oh, look, I know you've been saving up little Jimmy, you know, 50 cents a week, good on you. Very, very, very regular. I know you've been saving, but, but you, you just don't quite understand. This isn't, this isn't canteen prices. And he says, no, 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 I want to pay for myself. I want to feel that I've earned it. I want to have paid my own way. Well, what do you say to that? I don't want you to help Dad. You offer, oh, well, how about we go halves? No, no, I want to do it on my own. Oh, it's ludicrous, isn't it? It's just, it's just never going to happen. We get that. We see that. But that's exactly uh, what it's like when we say, you know what, God? I think I'm all right. I think I can be a pretty good Christian. I reckon I can be an all right human being. And Paul says 
that the law uh, never could justify. It can't. The law can't justify because ultimately the only way you could be justified that's declared innocent, that is declared perfect, the only way you can be declared perfect by the law is if you are perfect. It's just logical. The only way you could be declared righteous, right with God, perfect, hit the mark by the law is if you are perfect. Being declared worthy would mean being perfect. But there's good news. The good news is that Christ redeemed us from that. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Paul writes, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So so how is it that, that Jesus pays? How is it that he pays our debt? Now that little reference to being hung on a pole... Uh, that isn't saying that uh, being hung on a pole brings down a curse of you. It's a little reference from Deuteronomy where it's talking about the consequences for capital, well, capital offences. Uh, so when you were executed because you'd done something heinous in the sight of the law, uh, you, were, you were killed, you were executed, and then you were hung on a pole as a sign that you're under a curse. The hanging on the pole didn't make them cursed. But, but that's just this, and that's why the saying is, cursed is anyone who's hung on a pole. You see anyone hanging on a pole? You go, they're under a curse. They're, they're under God's curse. And we see Jesus here taking in himself our curse. Taking in himself the, the consequences for our rebellion and brokenness. Did you see it there? He, he didn't just take the curse. He became a curse. It's a really interesting little statement uh, because becoming is it's far more invasive than taking on, isn't it? It's not just putting on a jacket for a while. It's taking in yourself. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul describes what, what Jesus did on the cross as God made him who had no sin, he was sinless, to be sin. Not to take our sin, to, to be sin. This isn't an accident. This isn't a typo. It's come up a couple of times. Jesus became, it's, it's deeper, deeper than just taking the consequences. He identified with it. This is, this is more than skin deep. This is like the difference between, uh, you know, when you get your, your concrete driveway painted and when you get it coloured in the mix. And colouring is always better because when you chip it, the colour goes all the way through. This is, this is somewhat akin to that. And, and, and I can't even wrap my head around what Jesus has done for me. It's not just taking the consequence. He's identifying as my sin, as my curse, as everything that I deserve and all that I am. And that's horrendous to imagine, but it's also glorious because it means that the reverse is true. The end of this, this verse is amazing. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Not we might wear the righteousness of God. Not we might be covered by the righteousness of God. Not we considered the righteousness that we might become. Jesus became that for us so that we might become what he gave to us. What what Christ gives to us when we trust him, uh, it can't wear off. You don't have to reapply it every five years. It doesn't need works to top it up. In this chapter, 
Paul confronts one of our most common insecurities and possibly one of the greatest dangers to our salvation. This is at the core of this letter, the core of the gospel of Jesus. And it's this question, who or what will you trust for your security? Will you trust what you do? Like a, like a painted veneer on your driveway? Will you trust your works? Or will you trust what Jesus has done? I want to encourage us to, to please recognise that we do not deserve our place. If you've not recognised that yet, please do. Please consider what you have done and what you haven't done and how unworthy you are to be called a child of God, like all of us. Recognise that. Look it in the face. But don't let it crush you. Instead, embrace, uh, embrace faith. Trust this amazing God. Believe him. Trust Jesus. Trust in what Jesus did on the cross in his death as the way to start and finish a race. Don't start with faith and try and carry on through doing the right thing. Look to Christ. Look to the cross. I want to encourage us to, to follow in Abraham's footsteps. This is, this is an old faith and we have a great forefather to look forward to, back to the, the man of faith. Find your assurance like Abraham did. Find your assurance in what Jesus has done. Trust what Jesus has done to credit your account. And as you do, celebrate our absolute inclusion into the top tier, the the only tier of the people of God. And finally, I want to ask you, please do not let your pride make you refuse this charity. Now, we, we hear about this sometimes. You might even think of when you're being generous. You say, well, I'll let them pay a bit so that they can keep their pride. You heard that phrase we're familiar with? You think, oh, well, I know I can't pay all of it, but I'll pay a bit. Just let me contribute something so I can retain my pride. I think that's what drives us to bring something in meals when they say, don't bring anything. I want to retain my pride. I can't. I can't bring myself to turn up empty here. Do not let that, do not let that pride stop you from taking hold of what Jesus offers, from trusting him and him alone, because it is only faith in Jesus that will save. Works will get you none of the way. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you that you have provided completely for us in our poverty and weakness and darkness and death. We are unworthy. There is nothing we can do to earn your favour or deserve your, your grace. But you love us still. And you offer us forgiveness if only we would let go of our foolish pride and trust in you. And we pray that we would do that in Jesus' name. Amen.